Comfort Monk. We've got Dylan calling in remotely. How you doing, Dylan? Doing good, man. I'm excited to be here for the 50th episode. This is a pretty, feels like a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't want to repeat what anybody else has said, but it's been a long year. And it, for Comfort Monk, it's also been a really fun and fruitful year. We've gotten to talk to a lot of awesome people, made a lot of new friends, and uh, who'd you get to talk to this week? Well, we were lucky enough to get Joe Lally from Fugazi. Um, he's also recently been working with projects like The Mesthetics and Kariki, which Kariki put out what is easily my favorite record of 2020. But, you know, obviously both of us are huge Fugazi fans too, so it's just uh, definitely a, a really great get for the show um but it was awesome talking to him man he was one of those guests that's just like clearly experienced with chatting and this kind of nature and you know i'd ask him a question and he would just give me uh so much gold in return um so it was a you know not a lot of me talking which i think is usually my favorite episodes or when when the guests are really hitting a stride like that. Um, but yeah, we talked about all sorts of stuff, man. We talked about, of course, we talked about the Kariki record and uh, how that project came to be and sort of took it all back and talked about, you know, his uh, entry point into music. And yeah, man, we, I think we covered a lot of ground and, and it was just a really easy, enjoyable conversation. Awesome. I'm looking forward to people being able to hear it do you want to talk a little bit about what we have going on next year? Well, it's about to be 2021, and I think we're going to try to hit the ground running. We've got a few projects in the works already as far as new releases that are going to come out, uh, a few records that we're going to have a hand in. Um, and, you know, we put out two compilation records in 2020. I think we're going to try to match that this year as well and try to keep at it with this podcast project, too. Thanks to everybody who's listened along the way and, uh, you know, who supported us in any way. Um, and, yeah, enjoy this conversation with Joe Lally, and we'll see you in the new year. Myself and Eddie, who runs the show with me, we've been listening to the Kariki record all year, man. It's absolutely my favorite record that came out this year. Cool. Right on. Yeah, man. Are y'all, uh, I know that, you know, obviously right now nobody's really touring, but what, like, you know, if the dust settles and this vaccine starts to kick in, are you guys hoping to be a road project at any point, or do you think you'll stick with kind of just making records for now? I think um, I think as soon as things feel right, you know, for people to be gathering, um, I just imagine, um, you know, that we would go out and play because we are 
um, the type of people who like to go out and play the music that we write, you know, for people. And that's kind of where we left off. We were just about to get into booking weekend shows, believe it or not, in March. I mean, considering we went for years, years of just writing in the basement um, before we managed to play a couple of shows the third year and then the next year, we played a couple of more shows. We we just went out on a, you know, we played like five shows in a row or something, driving to places that were an hour, hour and a half nearby. And then uh, we would, because they had their son with them and their son is, you know, like 12. We would drive home and then get up the next day and drive to the next show and then come home and <laughs> do that. <laughs> We, you know, we were determined to like start getting out and playing, and so March was slated for the book book weekend dates. You know, where where Ian could find them, and um, he doesn't. You know, that's this is not the kind of thing where he's trying to he's trying to book something to get as many people into a larger venue. He's just booking them closer to the date in smaller places. So it just never happened because of uh, COVID. So yeah, the timing was. Was pretty well. I mean, there's no good timing for that, but yeah, it just yeah. happened to hit right right around the time you guys were getting the ball rolling with the record. But uh, exactly. Well, I mean, I you know, I I'm looking forward to it whenever the time comes because I think that those songs will definitely translate well live. Um, but yeah, it's you know, speaking of that project, you know, what was the genesis of it? How did it kind of come to be? Um, you know, I. It really goes quite a ways back because uh, obviously Ian and I played together for 15 years, but we lived together uh, for nine of those years. Uh, I lived at Discord House too, and you know when I when I moved to Italy, that that was for eight years that we were gone. But during that time, you know, Ian and I of course just stayed in touch and talked. And after their son was born. The Evens did a couple of years of playing, I guess, and then they stopped. And um, I think Ian was just ready to have another person to kind of bounce off, um, you know, melodic things with or, you know, writing on bass with. And they, they ended up having people with them at their practices, you know, different bass players in D.C. join them here and there over time. And when we talked on the phone while I was living away you know we just we discussed that and eventually you know we moved back so when we arrived in 2015 it just was pretty natural to just go over there and see where things were at and just start playing that's fantastic man and you know speaking of how natural it was you know i listened to you playing with you know brendan for all those years in fugazi and in, and in aesthetics as well but then you know, and think about how natural that uh, rhythm section is together. But I think you and Amy are just as natural. I mean, it's that's a huge selling point of that record is just how locked in and how creative the rhythm section is. I love it, man. It's yeah. I mean, it's a pleasure to be playing with Amy, who is a good drummer. Um, but you know, playing with different different people that you you know like the way they play and stuff. I mean, so you just, you just learn something different about your playing, you know? And so, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure doing that. It's 
a lot of the material that is the first record. I can't really determine how much anymore because we played together for so long before the shows. But they had written a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, it was kind of like where the evens ended, you know, like the evens putting together material for their next record is definitely the beginning of what is the, you know, first Kariki record. Um, the songs that actually materialized and we began working on while we were playing, I'm, I just, I'm not even sure I know, you know, which, which ones are which. There are definitely, there are definitely ones that were, that were much older and they were, they were playing with people while I was living in Italy and just kind of trying to figure out where they would go. You know, those kinds of things, you know, where you just have a ton of, Ian always has a ton of riffs lying around. So, um, you know, all, a lot of that was growing and, um, yeah, we just continue to do that. I mean, that, because that's what we, we've always done. We just kind of, you know, wasn't too different for there, for there to be a problem and to be quarantined because we had already been playing together through that. So we were kind of part of the same bubble anyway of people that you're in contact with. And we just kind of kept doing it. So we just keep tinkering away at music however many days a week we can get together. It's usually about uh, two days a week now. Um, but it's, yeah, just that's what we do. So. I hope, I hope that things are going to change and you can go out and play music live again at some point because we'll be doing that too. But yeah, I don't quite see that yet. So uh, things have to change. Absolutely. And I, well, I do hope that whenever the time comes that hopefully, you know, you guys are still able to spend some time together in between then and now so that... Uh, Maybe we'll have a, a new album's worth of material from you guys as well. That would be great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, speaking of having, you know, just being in each other's bubbles of who you're in regular contact with, I mean, I guess you and Ian have to be collaborating pretty often with just Discord-related stuff, too, and that you're both so actively involved, you know? Um, well, you know, it's really, it's not something that I'm, I'm really involved with anymore. In the past, I did some mail order and when I moved back, I started helping Ian upload things to the Fugazi live series site. And I, I went over there and did, you know, um, almost like what Ian has had an assistant for over time, um, you know, but I haven't, I haven't done that for a while now when the aesthetics started playing my, my, you know, any free time I had started going to those practices and then the aesthetics really got out and played a lot more than we we're kind of just the opposite of, um, Kariki that we would write enough because we would, things would come together, um, very well in the practice space, which was also a place where we recorded, so we got a lot of our ideas together and kind of off and running, and then we would just go out and play. So we ended up getting out two albums and doing a whole lot of playing. Um, whereas Kariki, you know, was spending way more time writing and um, just kind of working on the music and not getting out live very much. It was kind of weird being in both bands, but they, they kind of did everything, you know, one way or another. Um, but yeah, I haven't, so, I, so I'm not really part of, reg, sorry, 
I'm not part of regular work, you know, at Discord, but, uh, um, you know, I know, I kind of know the, the things that are basically going on there, but I'm, I'm not a part of, of Discord. Gotcha. Well, you know, I know you keep mentioning the time you spent in Italy. Were, were there any uh, experiences there that you kind of gleaned anything from musically or creatively or otherwise? Oh, totally, yeah. Um, I, you know, I played with... I played with a number of different people, but I did spend some time with, um, you know, a, a guitar player and drummer. Um, that was a good experience to get out and play. Those people I got around the most with, Fabio Kinka on drums and Elise, um, Elisa, um, Jesus Christ, I can't even think of on guitar and, uh, um, Elisa Bella. And, um, that was, I mean, I played with a lot of people there because it got, it just was so scattered for um, the first year or two that I was there and then settled in with Lisa and Fabio for quite a while and uh, then went out again with a drummer I had played with early on, um, jo- Joelle Pagliaccia. And um, he he's more of a... Um, He's more of a free player, you know, and does a lot of jazz and stuff. And he plays, um, you know, he knows the other musicians that are just, he, he's in contact with some great guitar players. So this guy, Manlio Maresca, um, and Joelle and I, we went out and did some shows. And uh, it's just, they're, the people who play that I came into contact with, like the guys in Zoo, are just really good players, like, the people who are doing music in Italy are super dedicated, really well-studied players for the most part. I mean, it's hard to generalize, but that's the way people are because it's still considered not a legitimate thing to be doing. <laughs> like, you know, like, oh, yeah, what else do you do, you know, um, when you tell someone you're a musician? So... So generally, the people I played with were just really, really good players. So it was kind of awesome playing with Joelle and Monlio. And uh, there's an English guy who'd been living in Italy for a long time, um, Mike Cooper, who lives in uh, Spain now. And I got the chance to do some playing with him, although we only did one live show. He plays uh, lap steel uh, guitar. And yeah, there's just, I mean, it was pretty amazing. I also did. I also played bass and sang backups for a guy who plays and um, he does his own, you know, singer-songwriter music. But he he sings in Napolitano, which is the dialect from Napoli, and uh, his name is Francesco Di Bello. And that was, you know, kind of great to just kind of, you know, sink into some what is basically kind of a, you know, goes into sort of folk. Italian music to some degree, although of course it's very popular, you know, more contemporary music, but it, it really had, you know, deeper roots in it. And, uh, and it was interesting to hear and learn some of that dialect. That, that sounds now, amazing. So, were, you yeah, able to, of, were you able all, to record all, much yeah. of this music when you were over there? It was a very different experience all around. Um, I, you know, I, I managed to play like bass on, you know, a song on a record of his, um, 
Francesco's, but, uh, you know, it, it just was, it was totally in past. I would just kind of hang out with him or do something, you know, we would, we would set up something if you, because he lived in Napoli or nearby, he would, when he was in Rome, I, I would try to kind of, you know, hang out a little bit, try and get something, um, going live with him. If there was something we could collaborate on and, uh, but for the most part, you know, we didn't get to see tons of things through, you know, it would have been nice to try to try to write things together. But it, both of, he, had, he has young kids and, you know, my daughter was like between the ages of, uh, you know, six and 12 or something. So it, it just, you know, is really not the easiest thing to do living in different cities. But I, I recorded the third record there, my third solo record. Um, why should I get used to it? That that was done in a studio in Rome. Okay, I didn't realize that one was recorded over there. Yeah, I hope hopefully you know, like you were saying, if if it gets to be a safe time to travel again, maybe you can get over there and get a little bit more of this, these collaborations on tape. Because I mean that's something I would definitely love to be able to hear. I'm sure there. I mean there's. I could probably do a little digging and maybe find some live footage as well. But, you know, the more of those experiences on tape, the better, I'd say. Yeah, it's, it, it would be nice to have seen a couple of ideas through with uh, a number of people that I met and played with. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to, you know, those things are, they were never that easy for me to do, like go spend time Italy is the kind of place like you could probably find somebody's house in the country and then go record there, like set up what you need to, you know, th- with a computer and microphones and stuff and make something happen and just hang out there and record. But I, I just didn't have that kind of time, you know, to spend a week or so um, getting those basic things down. And now it just becomes super extravagant an idea. You know, I, I wanted to, to do as much in um, Brazil, you know, my, I visited Brazil very early on when my first record just came out. Um, somebody there from a record label uh, asked me to go there and play with a couple of people on that label. And so I, I you know, I had a backing, you know, drummer and guitar player, and, um, did a tour there with that stuff. And I went back a couple of times actually after that, once with an Italian guitar player and once with the with Elisa and, and Fabio and they're, they're just always super supportive and accommodating for stuff. But I, you know, I just couldn't get that extra amount of time away from home to record there, but that's something I would love to do in Brazil too, because the music is just kind of in the air there. It's, it's an amazing place to be. And I've always felt that from visiting there. Yeah, that would be amazing as well, man. I hope that does happen. Um, but, you know, you touched on Mesthetics a little bit earlier, and I was kind of curious how the two of you got linked up with Anthony to to get that project going. Um, the Mesthetics really came about because um, I had made some music the last three years I was in Italy. I didn't travel. I really tried to stay home for a while. Um, I felt I was needed around the house. And... Uh, didn't want to feel like an absent father anymore. And during that time, I, st- I was just making music, you know, in the apartment. And then some people dropping by would, like Mike Cooper, could just, you know, plug in and record. And Monlio. 
And uh, Joelle sent me some drum tracks and Ricardo Lagomasino here. He was living in Philly at the time, who plays on my second solo record. And I did a lot of touring with. I did like seven tours with him. Um, he he really helped to facilitate and Joelle, uh, Ricardo and Joelle, they, they are just great drummers. And that really helped me experiment more so it was music that i didn't really understand but i made you know what would be almost an album's worth of music that never really got finished and i I still don't totally understand it but uh but it just kind of exists there on um recorded but um i played that stuff for brendan when i got back and it made him think of anthony because brendan had seen anthony play in a number of different situations where he was playing like uh surf music in a band with his brother and uh, Kenny and um, and then uh, experimental music like you could find Anthony playing jazz I mean just so much different shit that he gets involved with and then he's in a project Janelle and Anthony with his wife Janelle and they put out tons of records and played all around for you know 10 years or something I didn't know Anthony at all when I just had never heard of him, but, and, and he's only from, you know, um, where, where are they from? I want to say McLean, Virginia, but I'm, I think I'm wrong, but right here, uh, very close to DC. And, uh, they, um, they had done some recording with Brendan to fill in a little soundtracky bit he was doing for, part of his Burn to Shine series, I think it was. And they filled in this piece of music for him, and he just loved playing with them, and he really wanted a reason to play with Anthony again. So when I came back and played him that stuff, it made him think of Anthony's ability and uh, improvisational abilities and so forth. So, I mean, you really can't go wrong with Anthony if you're thinking of any kind of guitar playing, period. But uh, anyway, he invited him over to play with us. So Brennan and I got together and we're, you know, under the idea that we would just get together and play my solo stuff. So we kind of went through my solo material of me singing and playing. Anthony's playing guitar and it was kind of like, what on earth are we doing playing my solo stuff with this guy on guitar? So it was fantastic, but it also seemed like, you know, wasting his time or, you know, that we could get into a whole different thing. They were both pretty busy at the time. So it took a couple of weeks, but Anthony wrote to us and said, would you want to be the rhythm section on a solo album? He was writing a solo album. So the songs that started, Kariki, there was probably three or more of them, that's correct. That started the Mesthetics really started out as his solo project. And then we just gave him all the time he needed and, and kind of, you know, would play what we would play to what he presented and then would let, give him the time to work stuff out and not, you know, go like, well, if you're going to play with us, it'll cost you this much money for our time or whatever. So he wasn't rushed through the project and we just kind of became a band in the meantime, you know, um, it just kind of kept going on for months, you know, of his writing and taking his time with it, but it just started to solidify and we just really became, you know, 
excited about what we could write together and it just kept expanding and and then we just wanted to go out and play you know the stuff and he you know he just kind of dropped the idea of it being a solo record and it became the band and and then we focused on doing the first show and yeah it's it's something i i really miss doing a lot so uh i don't know where that is we we haven't been together since march 3rd and lost our practice space because it was over top of a restaurant and that's a long story, but we just kind of got shut out of it. That was also Brendan's studio. So, uh, he's really hoping to get back in there. Um, we almost finished a third record, but, uh, we have to get back to it at some point. Yeah. And it's, yeah, pretty harsh. You definitely should, man. And I, I was, uh, revisiting you guys' tiny desk concert earlier and, it was such an interesting performance because, you know, obviously when, when people think of Tiny Desk, a lot of times they think of everything as so, so scaled down or, or stripped down uh, and, and kind of quieter. But I what was really neat about watching you guys is like it still had the energy, as as much energy as I expect you guys would be like if you were playing to a full, you know, rock club somewhere. But But it was... Not that loud, and the yeah, and everybody's finesse, man. Like Brendan is, is so. I mean, he's it's just as effective, um, but the, his touch was so light during that performance. It was really, really, really impressive to watch. Um, when you guys play live, do you? I mean, I'm sure you have a, a lot of dynamics you play with, but do you feel like that's? Uh, am I am I? off point at all and thinking that you guys seem to be deliberately having a little bit of a lighter touch on, on that performance. Oh yeah. We, we had to, um, when Anthony first set his amp to play there, you have to remember that that's in a big open, you know, that's, that's like on the corner of a building. When you come out of the elevator, you kind of go around this wall and then you're going down the hallway past a whole bunch of people's desks in a hallway um and it's not, not a hallway but a big open room so there's it's just you know a working environment basically at the um radio station so it just gets used in a particular way um to do those shows you got to play quiet so when anthony first turned his amp on i mean bob boylan just kind of <laughs> hit the roof he was kind of like no <laughs> that's too, like that's way too loud there's no way so uh it really he it took a couple of more adjustments to get him down the way bob wanted him so it actually was way quieter than anthony wanted to be because he has to get his amp kind of fired up to do what he wants it to do for his pedals you know um but otherwise you know, playing quietly. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's an amazing thing to be able to do um, for uh, you know aggressive music. It's it's another way of interpreting it, and it almost always comes across if you if you treat it that way. You know, and it's so it's really a pleasure to be able to do that. So I, I enjoy doing that a lot. But yes, you are not mistaken. It's very. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, and I could tell it, you know, I, I had seen, I hadn't had a chance to see the Mesthetics live, but uh, when you guys played Hopscotch, uh, several of my friends were uh, at the show, and a friend of mine, Michael Crawford, I believe, posted some some videos, and, you know, I've seen you guys 
tons of live footage online and uh you know i could tell that this was definitely like a reimagining but it, like you said I, I think that for it to work just as well but be that much quieter is says something about the players for sure but it also says a lot about the songs and uh you know how they can they're not reliant on volume to be just as effective which is cool um but yeah that hopscotch show man you know all of all of these columbia musicians i know who are in raleigh for the weekend like they pretty much all came back just talking about aesthetics so you you guys were definitely resonating with with that crowd that night and i love it man i'm I'm excited that you guys have done so much with it and and like you said i mean i'm hoping you can lean into it a little bit more um but yeah you know if you don't mind i definitely want to take it back just a little bit um you know obviously people connect you with with dc and their minds but uh what town did you actually grow up in you weren't in the city right no, I was in Rockville, Maryland, which is like, you know, 20 minutes north direct, you know, from downtown. It would take, you know, about that long to get up to Rockville. It's not that far away. But as far as living there in the late 70s, early 80s, when the punk scene was happening, it was it was like I was a million miles away. I mean, to find out about things, you know, in a neighborhood where. You know, nobody my age and that, that I hung – some older guys I found out later, you know, like when I was walking down the street to my friend's house with the Sex Pistols record, this this guy who was like an older uh, – about four years older than me, you know, commented like, oh, punk rock has made it to Randolph Hills, you know. Um, th- that kind of thing, you know, was pretty – I was pretty shocked that that guy said anything, you know. And at that time, you know, so it was, it was really hard to discover – what would have been going on in the city at that time with the people that I know now, the people around discord and all the other little labels that popped up at that time. Um, I, I just, it took me years to figure that out, even though I had a, <clears throat> I had a uh, friend in high school who had grown up, his family lived in DC when he was pretty young and then moved out to the suburbs. So I met him in this art class. He was a year ahead of me. So he was already driving and would basically take me into the city to see shows, you know, from kind of the get go from like 79. I saw uh, the B-52s and then um, Devo and the Clash and the Cramps in um, like 79, 80. And, um, you know, that was all like kind of some of the bigger bands. And then we would just go see things that were whatever kind of was going on. The 930 Club and some local bands. But. Um, what was I going to say? The you know we went to a you know what became uh, known is very well known now. Um, Madam's Organ, where the Bad Brains would play. We went to see a show there, probably in '79 or '80, and it just didn't happen that night. They were supposed to play, but didn't. So it was like not seeing them play. I missed the point of like hardcore even existing. Like I, I just, I completely missed the boat, you know, and it took quite a while to even hear about, you know, the next thing that kind of brought that back into focus. So I was seeing these people at shows, but I was completely unaware of people my age at the shows who were in bands and actually 
on records that were being put out by some of the people at the shows. I mean, that was kind of the mind-blowing thing, and I, I don't know when I figured that out, probably in 1981, something like that. Right. And, and was it sometime around then that you kind of started leaning into making music yourself, you feel like? Um, that wasn't until, it was more like 83 that I picked up a bass. Um, I, you know, because of the music that I was listening to, there were bands like, you know, like the Cramps, but more, um, there was a San Francisco band called Pink Section. That, that was the kind of a band that sounded like they were making music, although they sounded like they didn't really know what they were doing, but they were making what I thought was really cool music with really cool lyrics. And that was the kind of thing that made me think I could be in a band. And then it took till I was really getting deeper into like Joy Division and um, public image, really, that I started to equate something about the way I saw bass um, and its function in music. And that related back to the music that I had got into first when I was like nine or 10, I, I really, the first music I ever really got deeply into was a lot of soul and R&B and funk, like uh, Otis Redding and James Brown and the Ohio Players, Funkadelic, Sly and Family Stone, stuff like that. I really was very deep into that music before I even got into classic rock, which didn't happen until I was in junior high school. So I, I kind of put together, in my mind, there was a thread that ran, you know, from what, what I, and I, you know, look, now I can see that the people that influenced Peter Hook and John Wobble were, were definitely, it was definitely connected. It definitely had its roots in R&B, whether it was through, you know, rock steady music or the Jamaican music that they were turned on to in, in England or other other things they were listening to, but it but it did have its you know there was a connection and I and even though it wouldn't have like made sense to to try to you know put it into words it it was something I could see um, related to you know rep, the repetition of funk which isn't quite that repetitious it's there's something in the beat but but the there's a there's way more complexity in the bass lines than uh than i felt i needed to 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 pick up an instrument <laughs> and still draw from that you know because that's what was essentially going on i i didn't even necessarily put that into uh words at the time or even put it together in my mind but i could see it and and so i knew that i could I knew that I could play it. I picked up a bass, started writing music with people, you know, with with uh, Peter Cortner, who later sang for Dag Nasty. We did our first bands together because we had gone to that same art class where I met my friend Ivan, who turned me on to a lot of this music. So he was older than me, and then Peter was younger than me. So the same thing was going on with me and Peter that I was telling him about different bands that he was getting into. And then when we both were out of high school, we had gone to a minor threat show and then talked to each other afterwards. And he was, he was going away. He was in New York going to school, but was visiting DC at the time. And uh, when he came back, we just started working on music and did a couple of bands together. 
So it was pretty much, you know, not knowing anything about what I was doing or the instrument I was playing. But I had listened pretty intensely to music for quite some time at that point. So there was something going on because it was a good, you know, 10 years of uh, a lot. I covered a lot of genres, you know, by then. So (laughs) of, of listening and listening is an enormous part of being able to play. Yeah, absolutely, man, and and that, I think that's one of the the things I, that's most interesting about your approach to the instrument is that, I mean, now that you're, you're you're naming some of these names like Peter Hook and all of these R and B influences, like it's just solidifying in my brain that it seems like you're pulling from an incredibly eclectic range of you know bass influences, um, but yet you know at the end of the day it just sounds like. Joe Lally on bass, which is the best part about it. But you know, they, um, you know, I'm, I wouldn't have made that Joy Division connection as you know an, an early inspiration. But now that you say it, like I can definitely kind of hear some of the, uh, some of the, you know, some of the similar similar aspects of it. But uh, were you much of a James Jamerson guy? I feel like the way you dance around ever so slightly, you know, you're not quite. Uh, I think you kind of aren't maybe quite as flowery in your approach, but you're, I don't don't really, uh, yeah, I really don't. um, I don't, I certainly don't physically move around all that much, but I don't, I didn't know. I took, it took me a long time to, I, 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 although I had been listening to a lot of Motown since I was young, I I actually had not figured that out. That was, that was something that, you know, when I, I had to kind of go backwards to, you know, by the time I was playing bass for, I was probably in Fugazi when I when I heard of James Jamerson, when I started to understand who, you know, that there was a single person behind a lot of that playing is bizarre, you know, that's oh, yeah. a weird, it's a weird concept, but I hadn't, um, I hadn't, I didn't really know that, yeah, for a long time, but yeah, it's really, so it's, it's probably just the, the, his actual playing and then the people he would have influenced and the people who would have run with the way he played, you know, throughout that period of music that just had its influence on people. Cause then that seeped into other genres of music that I was also listening to. Cause you know, then that comes back through, it gets reinterpreted through, you know, reggae covers, you know, if you're listening to a station that does, you know, like I like I was in the late seventies, early eighties, I'd be listening to a local station that would play some punk music, and then they would there would be a guy doing, you know, a reggae show that would play dub. You're going to hear a bunch of covers of like R and B, you know, sixties, seventies R and B music. So you kind of get it coming back to you. You know, it's like a feedback thing. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, it's, I was, I was, it was definitely one way or another it was coming in. But yeah, over the years, it's clearly something that I'm still completely astounded by James Jamerson's playing. Yeah. Yeah. So many people, you know, the guys who played in uh, the, ba- the band that is known as the Ohio Players in the period that I knew them, it turned out that they were already, you know, for these very classic, like four records of skin tight fire. Um, you know, honey and, you know, whatever those records, they are amazing sounding records, but that, that band had actually already gone through a life of like 10 years or something at that point. 
And I, I just didn't know that stuff. So that those are things that you just, <laughs> it takes, you know, 20 years to understand what some of the music you listen to, like where it came from, you know, and what was going on. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that's one of the things that stands out about pretty much all of the, the rhythm sections you've been a part of is that, you know, no matter what's going on, there's always a constant pocket there that uh, you guys really, there's a great juxtaposition because it might be like this huge chaotic moment, but then it'll all strip down. And then a lot of times it strips to just the drums and bass, but in a way that just reminds you of like that rhythm section is just constantly fucking killing it. It's It's great, man. I love, I love that aspect about, I feel like that's a very consistent thing throughout all of the bands that I've heard you play in is that it's, it's a the bands bring they write they compose the songs in a way that give the rhythm section moments to shine outside of just um you know holding it down like kind of pushes it to the forefront makes them the lead at several moments too um but yeah it's that's one of the things that I've appreciated the most um uh, over the years listening to you but you you mentioned those those early bands that you started which of those were actually making records and putting were were many of those able to actually put a record out or was it so early on that you quite, didn't quite get it together to record yeah oh yeah it was so it was so early that you know i mean for us as a band early because we you know there was no there was nobody interested in putting on a record of ours uh the bands peter and i did was uh a band called lunchbox and a band called pitbull <laughs> and uh those those bands both played two shows and each band played like one show in an actual venue of some kind and well actually not the first the first show of the first band lunchbox's first show was an art opening for um our guitar players i think it was our guitar player um his mother's like art show in a friend's hair salon so it's kind of like a bunch of adults like watching us play and then um totally weird um and then the second show that that band did was a old friend from that same art class which a lot of people went through that art class by the way at einstein the montgomery county art center school like uh, damon locks and uh jay robbins and uh steve gamboa and i think ian sfanunius too and uh, that other show that lunchbox played was a yeah it was a friend who asked me to play a party and basically did not like the music we played. Um, when we were done, she said, "You know, I hate that punk rock shit." <laughs> yeah, well, so was, I'm glad she didn't like steer you guys were. in the wrong direction, man. Yeah, and then then the other the other band Pitbull played a, played a show in um, a Chinese restaurant that did uh, punk shows, and um, in you. Uh, near the University of Maryland, and then we played in a yard of a, of a place I lived. We, we did an outdoor show. And so those were the, you know, you know, those were the shows we were playing. At that time, I think right after that, I suppose it was, I played bass on a cassette um, that a band that I've been watching play, the uh, Platinum Slugs, I, I saw them a lot around that time and and uh they had a bass player who moved away and his name was joe and they already made the cover for the tape and so they uh, got me in to play bass 
and and I and so that way I I was already in the artwork as Joe. Perfect. So so after that, what what were the the next projects that you picked up with uh, after those two bands? They were really just kind of you know mostly misses where I tried to play with people that never amounted to anything. Um, you know, I did I did that quite a bit after I tried. Uh, I lived in a group house with Bubba Dupree. He and I got some people together to get a um, a group house together. And, and I really tried doing music with him, but I just couldn't. I had injured my hand at work and didn't play bass for a while, and I got a drum set. I was trying to play drums. And, and then I was working nights, and I was just completely, like, useless and not nothing was working and i and i just kind of when i even when i could play bass again i i I got together with a band that ended up being a band called revelation with this guy kenny dread and um i got together a couple of practices and he was really he's really positive even though i like didn't know what i was doing barely play with him and he's you know he's really encouraging but i just i just didn't keep doing that and uh and then I got a chance to roadie for Beefeater and in 86. And so I just left, just kind of left town for a couple of months and uh, moved out of that house and didn't know where I was going to live when I came back or anything. And we did a couple of months touring around the United States. And I came back from that tour. And actually, I got to sing. I got to sing with them when they would do an encore. I would sing paid um, with the band and uh that was just kind of the experience that kind of made everything seem possible but at the same time i loved beefeater and no one seemed to know that they were on tour or coming out to see them very much so i was like oh i will never be in a band because nobody likes this great band and um you know i met ian to leave for that tour he um the singer is was living with in a discord house and that's where the band got together to load the van and take off from and we you know we talked some before the tour and then after the tour i actually spent the night at the house and then um you know he took um tomas and i out to lunch to talk about the tour and a week later he called me to be in the you know to be in his project he wanted me to play bass although he had never seen me play bass um and it's yeah, it's just kind of hard to explain how any of that would have happened, but it did. And I I didn't really have much invested in it. I just was like, this guy I I knew Ian, you know, was in Meyer Thread and Embrace and had a record label and was serious about what he did. And I, I liked the music he did, but I never really imagined trying to make music with him. So I just kind of like watched what was going on, you know, and listening to what he was doing. And it just turned out that we had like some kind of musical rapport and he seemed to understand where I was coming from. And when we did get a chance to play with Brendan, cause we played with Colin Sears from Dagnasty at first, and then he quit to go on tour with Dagnasty. And, um, we, we played with a bunch of people, but we got to play with Brendan once and that was kind of hard to beat after that. Um, and that was a really good, you know, that was a really fortunate thing because Brendan also had a huge 
understanding of the music that I loved. We didn't necessarily talk about that right away. It's just that it turned out, I think, that his older brothers and sisters, you know, they listened to Funkadelic and they turned him on probably to a lot of the music that I was listening to when I was a kid. So um, he, he was just hearing all that and he was into it. So there was something that we had in common, you know, and even though I didn't understand a lot of what I was, what I was doing, I, I gave that to it. You know, I, I kind of brought that aspect of my playing, um, you know, it kind of came from there. So yeah, it was pretty darn fortunate to be with Brendan because that, you know, that's a darn good way to really learn to play your instrument is to play with a great drummer. Yeah. And it, I mean, man, you guys blossomed together in that project over the years. I mean, it's just, there's a million moments that stick out as, you know, musical moments that make me either want to get behind a drum kit or pick up a bass guitar because of the sounds you guys made together. Um, but when, you know, when I hear, you know, I, I recently listened to uh, that first demo, the Fugazi first demo, and, you know, it sounds so fully realized already at that point. Like, how long would you had, would you say you guys have been playing before you started recording? Because it feels like very, like, this is what I know Fugazi to sound like. It doesn't feel like there was a stepping stone. It sounds very fully conceived we, at that point. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, a lot of probably um, a number of those songs were were kind of coming together over the year that Ian and I were looking, you know, we, well, we weren't just looking. We Most of the year we were looking for a drummer. You know, we played with Colin for a number of months and then we were looking and then we finally settled in with Brendan to the point where he would said he would play a show with us. I think, he, you know, even though he was still in Happy Go Licky at the time. So there was just a good amount of time for Ian and I to actually get the way we played together. And, and probably a lot of what those songs were. I mean, Ian, you know, Ian had brought Waiting Room to some of the projects he was in after Minor Thread, I think, even Embrace or after Embrace, he was... He was showing it to people he played with and people just didn't want to play it, you know? And, um, basically I had already made up my mind that I was not going to be the person in the band who was going to say something like, you know, well, I didn't write that. So I'm not going to play it, you know, <laughs> which would have, I have to say would have dropped a lot of Fugazi music because bass lines came from Brendan Ian, even Gee sometimes. So, that's awesome. Uh, I didn't realize that you guys kind of shared the writing process that deeply, writing whatever yeah, we would, instrument. Yeah, sometimes we would play things until we realized, like, you know, maybe that guitar line is supposed to be the bass line. And then the whole song would shift when I would take on a particular line as the bass line, and then everyone else would find their other thing to play, you know. Or the you know opposite you know the baseline would become like this guitar part and then it's I mean you just everything really was about what made the song work you know and that and that was a pretty open minded you know way of of working so that helped but yeah we were we were getting pretty set because you know Ian was kind of getting together singing and playing guitar he had not done that so he was. You know, we I had the time to develop 
my bass playing while he developed that. So he would play me things he had written, sometimes finished like Waiting Room, and then sometimes not like, uh, you know, Bad Mouth or something. And I would play a response to it, you know. He would play me that opening guitar riff, and then I would play the bass line you hear after that. I just started playing it. I mean, I, I have no idea why the fuck I played that. I think I, I think I still thought somewhat like, um, you know, I spent a lot of time watching the obsessed play live and I lived with Wino and, and Wino's guitar playing and guitar players in general were a much bigger influence on me than, than bass players, which you may have heard or read me say at this point by now, but I was, you know, very much into writing a riff like a Zeppelin riff, you know, like a down, 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 or, you know, that translated to like the way Peter Hook wrote a riff and you just heard that thing repeat itself the whole song, you know? So I really saw the bass that way. And so when, so when Ian played that line, you know, a, a line would come out of me that was kind of, it was kind of like, Oh, what would Wino do? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so and it didn't really make any sense because I honestly, had no fucking idea what Wino was doing, you know? So it was just, it was the feel of knowing what Wino sounded like, you know, what the, the obsessed sounded like. And so I, I interpreted or I, I entered what Ian was playing with that kind of a feel, you know? And it just was like, I didn't even know if the notes were right or anything. I just started hitting them, you know? And the fact that Ian liked it, and the fact that it worked was just kind of like, I don't know. It was just part of what we were. And it, it doesn't really, that's, I guess that's where, you know, you just write music together. You just do what you do. And I, Ian, Ian had a background of playing piano and then playing bass where he was playing in bands and then playing in the teen idols. And then he was a singer in a band, but you know, then he was playing guitar. So he, he kind of, understood the guitar by way of musical composition, the piano, and then probably having an idea of what the bass might do. And then, you know, working out what he's going to do on guitar. And I think that, uh, when you're, when I'm listening to really any of the projects you've been involved in, but, you know, specifically with Fugazi, I, I can hear how, you know, you may not be thinking within traditional bass parameters on a lot of things, because yeah, it is really riffy at times. But it, in a way that you know, it, it makes sense that you guys might have said, "Oh, well, that guitar part makes more sense as a as a bass line," because even at its riffiest in the rhythm section, it's still always serving the song really well. Um, so it's like I don't know. It seems like the, there's a big focus on kind of creating this symbiotic relationship within everybody in that project and. Uh, you know, I was uh, I revisited that instrument movie, and there was a lot of talk about the you know how at the time you guys would jump into another song without uh without ever discussing what it was going to be, and you know there's a, so many songs that it could be because you have so many records and so much material. But yeah, it's almost like this like kind of especially watching video of you guys playing live, it's, it's, you know, maybe even specifically to that the stuff that's on that film. There's so many moments where all of you seem to be at that peak place that you kind of want to be where you're sort of lost in the music but in the best way and like 
kind of reminds me of almost like a Coltrane level of uh, like leaning into the musical experience so much that once you can get lost, it's like peak Fugazi, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, we really um, set out to be spontaneous on stage, to be as much in the moment as we could be, you know, making the decision not to use a set list. It, it just creates a particular thing, you know, to not know what's coming next, but to be ready for what's coming next. It really, you know, it, that, that really led to me kind of getting into meditation and stuff because I, you know, it took years maybe for me to identify what I liked about playing, you know, so much, but it, it really, became quite clear to me that that's what I was doing. When I went on stage, it was about emptying your mind, you know, because the only way you can be prepared for those things is to not be thinking, not to, to not think, to not think about what could be coming next, but you just might be wrong anyway. So it's better to be listening. So a lot of, you know, a lot of what you're seeing when you're watching us play on film is you're just you're watching four people listen very intently. <laughs> Right uh, to what is happening and what might happen next, and and so a lot of the things that you don't communicate about verbally, you know that that's what's going on with music. It's it's conversation between the instruments, which you have heard before, I'm sure, but it but it really is because it is you listening and then responding with what you play, and just shutting you know your mouth to do it. So it's um. Yeah, it was, it's, it's something I miss a lot. And when I went out to play my own music, I really tried to create a kind of a music that allowed for improvisation. And I wanted to create a skeletal background for people to, you know, put their own coloring and um, you put themselves into that they, they could explore something and I was just laying a ground for them to do that on by creating a bass line and the vocal line that, you know, carried a song structure that allowed the guitar and the drums actually to both be kind of, you know, doing something different. And they could change night after night. It could change, you know, it's just it's what people wanted to do with it. Yeah. And, I, and you know, I think that's what made going to a Fugazi show particularly exciting as you really just didn't know what what that set was going to be like um and you know of course like i think the the setting is half of the excitement too because you guys are quite often playing in you know less traditional places and just it's just a really it kind of gave every show made every show a really unique experience um which is why there's such a huge i'm sure that's a big part of why there's such a huge uh, documented history of live recordings and everything because it's almost I don't want to put you guys in the like same category as like the dead or something but there is like something because of how nuanced and the differences from set to set where I think people really do care to hear you know oh well it's this night and this year was particularly uh, exciting you know um, but that, you know, make I'm glad there is so much of that that's been documented because it's really cool to listen back to. Um, but you know, a lot a lot of times people bring up the fact that you know you guys never officially 
disbanded. It's an indef or you know an indefinite hiatus, and this is sort of a bold question, but I mean, is there like a perfect storm you could imagine that would make you guys uh, feel inspired to to get back at it, uh, or is it just kind of if it felt right? I think you know. I I think um, I mean the farther we get away from the last show, the harder it all seems. But it, it and and that's why I, I would say that what it would take would be spending a lot of time together because the way we would function would be to try to understand what are we now, and so that would require just being around each other a lot in order to play music together and kind of trying to decide like what are we going to do with the older material you know what i mean it's kind of like who are we now because for god's sakes long long time it's almost it's almost 20 years now yeah what was the last show it was 2002 so we're coming up on 20 years what what was the where was it what was the venue we were in england i i don't know it's it's on the uh, site though gotcha. the la- it'll be down for the last i think that last show should be the last you know, date listed on the 2002 tour of England. Gotcha. So yeah, uh, man, that's wild that it's already been quite that long. Yeah, you uh, have to kind of rediscover who you guys are, or at least you know what you'd want to say as a as a group now. You know. Yeah, and that you know, and that just still isn't. I mean, I mean, it's very hard to. I mean, Guy lives in. We're all here, but Guy is uh, in D.C. But Guy is in Brooklyn. And, you know, just having one person that is not nearby, it makes it, for the amount of time we need together, it, it just is totally un, undoable, you know. It's just not going to happen. So it's, it's going to require us being in the same city for years for, for it to even uh, be possible. You know what I mean? And yeah. that, that doesn't seem to be on the cards at all, so. Yeah, that's, I mean that makes perfect sense. You would really need to have to like, I mean that's kind of the nature of the project, like you said, uh, and you know with Kariki as well that there's a lot of uh, time spent in the lab, uh, finding out what you want to say, how you feel like expressing yourself as a group. So you would need that time together for sure. Um, but who knows, man? I, I mean, I, that would be exciting, of course. But you guys are putting out so much exciting music in various projects that. There's no shortage of great material to to latch onto right now. Um, another another project that I kind of only recently discovered and wanted to pick your brain about a little bit, and let me know if I'm pronouncing this wrong. But the project with Josh Klinghoffer and uh, and John Frusciante is it Ataxia? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. What what's the story there? How did that project come together? Because that's not you know I don't think of you know the Chili Peppers guys as super DC oriented, but you know, but it's definitely an interesting pairing. Well, the, the, uh, the relationship for, uh, um, me talking, you know, talking to John on the phone about music and stuff goes back to the fact that flea and Anthony, you know, had, had either contacted or met Ian long before, I think Fugazi came along. And, uh, and so, uh, when Fugazi had started, you know, I know Ian and I went down to see the Chili Peppers play a show, you know, just outside of D.C. in like, it might have been 1990, 1989. And uh, I'm not even sure who the guitar player was then. 
But uh, might have even been old Navarro at that point. I'm not sure. Who no, was. Not, no, that was later. Uh, that was later. It 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 was it must have Hillel might have just died. I I don't know, but it was it was fairly it was pretty darn early on. And, yeah, it's uh, an interesting well, era to be thinking about with that band. Yeah, I don't think. Um, I don't think at that point, I don't think John had been the guitar player yet. And then he came right after that or something. I don't know. I, anyway, the point is, is that Ian kind of knew, um, Ian and Flea had, you know, a friendship before even Fugazi was there. And then, um, they're, they're, you know, we went to see their band. They would show up at our shows. Um, when John got back in the band is when we first saw John in the band. I didn't see him when he was first in the band. I don't think any of us saw those shows. And then when he came back to the band, he had showed up at like five of our shows in uh, Southern California and, uh, and San Francisco and like Las Vegas. I mean, he literally just went to five shows in the area. And anyway, I moved, we, my family, when my daughter was a couple of years old, we moved out to LA for just over a year. And it was during that period of living there that I would talk to John on the phone about music mostly. And then him and Josh were making um, music, a bunch of music together, doing his solo records. But then they embarked on this thing where they were releasing an album a month for this band record, uh, for this label record collection. And so those were different. Each thing was like a different project. And they decided they would ask me to play bass for a live show that did like nine of the songs off some of their solo material. So I tried to learn that material, but I just, I've told the story before, but basically I couldn't, I couldn't figure out the songs because I'm not that good at that. And then they also needed to have keyboard, you know, a keyboard player, but it was just the three of us. So when we got to play to those nine, got together to play those nine songs that, you know, I, I wasn't actually playing them very well. And then John was kind of like, you know, we should just write music together. And I was like, that would be cool. Cause then I could <laughs> do something a little better than this. And, uh, I, you know, basically this was for a show. This was all for a show that was happening about 12 days away from that very first day. So that first day where I didn't play their music, John said we should play music we write. We wrote Dust. I mean, I just started playing a bass line, and John started recording that I, and I didn't know he had. As soon as it hit like 10 minutes of us jamming that, John turned it off and was like, okay, that's cool. And then he was like, let's do this again you know, whatever it was in two days or whatever. So we, we got together the next practice and then he would have lyrics for the song that we played the first night. And then that went on through the practices, except we would basically knock out two songs every time we got together. So by the time we got to the weekend before the show, we had all the music and he was like, should we go in the studio and record this? And I was like, if you want to. I mean, for me, it was something that would happen live. And then it just turned into a thing that got recorded. So the 10 songs that we were going to play live, they got recorded on that weekend. Then we played Monday and Tuesday, the two live shows. The one show became two shows because sold out, The Knitting Factory in L.A. 
And then, you know, they spent some more time like putting some synthesizer stuff on that because John was really into um, building some uh, modular synths at the time. So they, they kind of went and did that, and there was some remixing and things. But basically, all 10 songs got recorded. It got made into two albums, and it came out as two albums, two of the things that were released during, I think, their years. I think it was one year of like releasing something every month. So it just was, it just happened in 12 days, you know, as, as I remember. I don't think, it couldn't have been much longer than that. So the whole thing. Just it came and it went. Right, sort of a lightning in a bottle moment. I, I was it. just trying to like I was trying to write stuff that I could remember. So even the one song that I sing, I I did when we came to play it live. I remember standing on stage with uh, I think Josh was already playing the beat, and and I was trying to tell John I cannot remember what I'm playing, and it's just one riff, the whole song. And I still couldn't remember. It was two notes, and I couldn't remember where to place them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes it's you realize really, just how was, spur of the moment everything kind of was, you know? Yeah, so I was, I'm like going, John, I don't know how to play this. And he's going, da na da in my ear, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, man. I love it. Well, um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, man, but uh, I, I did want to say or ask rather, um, you know, obviously – I'd assume just like anyone else, you have a lot more alone time now than you were, or at least, you know, at home time. Um, have you thought much about leaning into any new solo work with this kind of, you know, yeah, it's kind of new context? It started, yeah, it started to appear. I Mainly I've been um, giving bass lessons, and that ended up taking up a lot of time. But in giving bass lessons, I encourage people to write. I really think that if, if you can write a couple of notes and put them together, you should be beginning your writing. So um, that's led me to just kind of, I don't know, all this playing and talking, talking about playing with people has made me write more. So there's more things gathering. I just don't know if they're going to become Kariki songs or if I'm going to end up making a solo record, but we'll find out. Nice, man. Well, I'm excited to hear what comes out of all those, man. And, you know, thanks again for making so much music that has really meant a lot to all of us uh, and just the way you approached being in a band and being a musician I would say has influenced what we do over here with Comfort Monk um, a great deal um, but yeah you guys are definitely a big inspiration and uh, you know we're thankful for the art you put out in the world man right on well thanks for being there and listening and uh, keep keep doing what you're doing Thanks, man. Well, we'll talk to you sometime soon. We'll let you know. I think we should probably, uh, that we're going to fast track this episode and get it out a little sooner than our normal turnaround time. So, uh, but when we got it live, I'll, I'll shoot it your way. Okay, great. All thanks, right, Jim. Man. Well, thanks I'll again. Be good. All right. See you, Jim. This has been a Comfort Monk Productions.